Hello, I'm Kate Jabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Russia claims Ukraine is about to detonate a radiological dirty bomb on its own territory. This is absurd. Allies reject this blatantly false accusation. Why has Moscow made this claim in top-level phone calls to the West? And has it damaged the system meant to protect us from a catastrophic miscalculation? As Russian men sent to fight in Ukraine go public with their complaints, we talk to a campaigner helping them fight conscription. I'm getting thousands and hundreds of calls from both soldiers and officers alike who are in Ukraine that should have never been mobilized, that are dealing with extreme difficulties because of medical conditions. And a century on, why All Quiet on the Western Front has been remade for the Netflix generation. The story of war, unfortunately, is pretty difficult, miserable conditions. They are fighting from trenches uh, on the front line in Ukraine. We, the West, may not be physically part of Russia's war in Ukraine, but we are in a war of words with Moscow, and it's reached new heights this week. Russia's defence minister requested and held talks with the British, French and American defence secretaries. He told them Ukraine was planning to detonate a radioactive dirty bomb on its own territory. That is transparently false, according to the UK and its allies. But the Kremlin's claim has been repeated at the UN Security Council to China and India, even in a phone call requested by Moscow between the head of its armed forces and the UK's Chief of Defence Staff Admiral Sir Tony Radikin. So what's actually going on here? Is it a false flag operation, simply an attempt to scare? Or does Russia genuinely have intelligence of a dirty bomb plan? Well, with me as always, Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark and Hamish de Breton Gordon, former commanding officer of the UK's Joint Chemical, Biological, Radiological and Nuclear Regiment. Hello to both of you. Um, Hamish, let's start with the concept of a dirty bomb. This is not a nuclear weapon, is it? The, the concept is a conventional bomb laced with radioactive material like uranium that could spread radioactive particles far and wide in the explosion? It's, to me, it, it's a complete chimera, which, which is a Greek mythological character, half goat, half lion and half dragon. In other words, a complete fantasy. I've never heard or known of any successful detonation of a dirty bomb. The explosion would be the most dangerous part of it. But it strikes me is part of the sort of Russian false flag and probably mainly focused at the domestic audience who are, you know, seeing tens of thousands of soldiers coming back in body bags. But as far as, you know, the fact that Ukraine might be thinking about a dirty bomb is quite reprehensible. There's no evidence to it. I think it's very unlikely that um, we'll see any nuclear activity. And you say this is a fantasy, but a dirty bomb has been made in the past elsewhere by Chechen fighters in the 1990s, in fact, two, although never used. Well, that's true. Uh, absolutely. My, my point being is that, you know, these are not uh, nuclear explosions. They're no more dangerous than a conventional bomb. You know, the radiation uh, might cause some issues, but to have a nuclear effect, you need some sort of chain reaction or an accelerator to create a massive and dangerous explosion with a lot of radioactive fallout. So what we're talking about, to me, is something that is um, is fantasy and is there to terrify. Because I think 
you know, with chemical and nuclear type weaponry, it is the psychological impact that is tenors to one, the physical. Uh, and that appears to be the case here. And part of a Russian force flag may be linked to potential battles in Kherson uh, and elsewhere. Who knows? Um, but I think it is something, you know, I'm delighted that all the West have called them out on this. Yeah, uh, Mike, um, if the uh, intention is psychological, what does Russia stand to gain by making this claim? Well, I think this is more directed at the Russian public than anybody else uh, to indicate that the the war is getting serious and that that it may be a danger. I mean, Hamish says, you know, this is a fantasy idea. The Russians sort of have a word for this, which is vranyo, very useful word, vranyo. And it means, I know you don't believe me, and actually I don't believe me either, but this is my story and I'm sticking to it, vranyo. And it's used in the context of fairy tales very often, a story that we both know isn't true. And that's what the Russians are doing. And in a way, it's a double bluff because they're saying, you in the West think that we are preparing a false flag operation. That's why we're doing this. And um, so be afraid just in case we are preparing a false flag operation. Yeah, Hamish, uh, Ukraine's saying this is a false flag operation. Russia is actually planning to deploy a dirty bomb itself. Both countries have radioactive material. They both have high explosives. So it looks like either one could easily combine them into a dirty bomb. Well, you know, technically, you're absolutely right there, Kate. But but it makes absolutely no sense at all um, to do this. I think it is um, part of uh, the Russian, what I call unconventional warfare, um, and that was very much developed by Sabrak in General Armageddon, as he's called, uh, in Syria, where you um, attack the civilian population to try and terrify them into capitulation and forcing their government to sue for, for some sort of you know, peace settlement. So that's what, what I think it is all about here. I think there is no indication that the Ukrainians would do this. Why would they? Their conventional forces are you know, having the upper hand against Russian conventional forces, which is why I think the Russians more and more are talking to the turning towards this sort of unconventional warfare, as I call it. As you said, uh, Hamish, a dirty bomb has never actually been successfully used, but Israel has done tests to see what the effects would be. What impact would they have above a conventional explosion? Well, it all very much depends on what radiological isotopes, what nuclear material is used and how much of it is used. Uh, without this chain reaction, you are not going to get this uh, massive explosion um, and um, you know, the outfalling of, of contamination. So it, it, I, I think it, it's very little. Um, you know, the, the, the way that the Russians used polonium, for instance, uh, when they uh, murdered Litvinenko in the UK uh, in 2006 is, you know, th that, that is where radiation in small doses can be dangerous. As far as blowing it up, the, the contamination obviously in the local area will be around for some time. But uh, it, it is unlikely to spread. I think of more concern is, is the blowing up of nuclear power stations. And only yesterday, um, the Ukrainian government were claiming that there was clandestine activity happening at the Zaporizhia nuclear power station. Now, if the Russians blew that up, uh, we would see huge amounts of contamination at the moment across Europe, because that's what the meteorological conditions are telling us. Uh, and of course, you know, we saw what happened with Chernobyl. A lot of that radiation actually fell in North Wales. So I, when I hear threats of, of uh, dirty bombs and I see what's going on at Zaporizhia and from a strategic 
position as far as the military is concerned, if they blew up Zaporizhia, the radiation would go across the front of the Ukraine attacking forces into Kherson. So, you know, that might be a reason that they're threatening Dirty Bomb so that they can potentially use Zaporizhia nuclear power station in their defense of Kherson. Hopefully this is all fantasy and it won't yeah. come to it, but uh, we need to watch it very closely. It is a terrifying thought. Uh, Mike, I, I listed some of the many top-level phone calls discussing all of this. It, it is striking that a time when diplomatic ties are almost broken, Russia has used communication channels designed to prevent a major ca miscalculation or accidental escalation by either side. Yes, and the military always do. They always try to keep their channels open because if the military don't talk to each other, then there is no communication. You're talking to you know, fellow professionals speaking to each other. Although uh, it is reported, I'm not sure how genuinely, but it is reported that the defence ministries in Britain, America and France have asked the uh, Russian defence ministry not to keep calling them unless they've got something more important and more uh, honest to talk about. They've actually hit back about this and said, that, look, these calls are really not very helpful. Um, please don't make them unless you, you've got something else to say to us. I'm not, that's a rumour that's going around. I'm not sure if it's true. Mm. If we don't trust what Russia's saying in these channels designed to prevent a miscalculation, does that make things more dangerous? Yes, it does. The channels have to stay open one way or another. I think you know when we're talking about you know what's what you what these channels are used for. That's a separate issue. But the the military will always try to talk to each other because the bottom line is you know, we can't we can't say that we'll never fight. But let's make sure we don't fight over an accident. Hamish, the, the UN nuclear watchdog, the IAEA, has dispatched inspectors to two sites at Ukraine's request to verify activities there. How do those inspections actually? Work? work? How can they be sure a bomb hasn't been made and hidden somewhere? Well, I think this is very welcome. The inspectors are very highly trained and very experienced people, uh, and they will know exactly what to look for. What, one of the pluses, I suppose, of radiation is it's quite easy to detect. So going to these places, if there is malicious activity going on, I am sure that they would find it. Um, I, I would also hope that they can get inspectors back into Zaporizhia. And Mike, can we really be certain that Russia's warning about dirty bombs isn't genuine? Uh, yes, as far as the, the idea, we can be certain that the Ukrainians are not do, would not do it for the reason that uh, Hamish gives, which is overwhelming, which is that they've got absolutely nothing to gain. But then there's another reason which even blows that one out of the water, which is that it would lose the war for the Ukrainians because the forensics on these things eventually are quite good. And if the Ukrainians were to do it, it would become known eventually that they were behind it and that would destroy Western support for them. I'm as certain about this as I'm about anything in this war. The Ukrainians will not, will not do this. Mike Clark, stay with us. Hamish de Breton Gordon, thank you very much for your time. Russian men, apparently conscripted and sent to fight in Ukraine, have taken to social media to complain they're not properly equipped. Other videos on the Telegram network say some haven't been paid and have been deployed without proper food, shelter or training. President Putin's mobilization decree has now called up at least a quarter of a million men. It's resulted in protests and tens of thousands fleeing Russia. The Kremlin has admitted mistakes in the mobilization, but it continues. Opponents say many of the military's drafts are illegal, sent to people not fit, 
or not required to fight. With the help of my colleague Xenia Zubova, I've been talking to Valentina Melnikova from the Committee of Soldiers' Mothers, a group which is helping those trying to fight their conscription. The issues that we are facing with and the questions that we are receiving is who will be mobilized and what kind of reasons can a person have to then say that I will not go. And the biggest concern of all is that the Russian government is not following humanitarian law. They are acting unlawfully. And the biggest concern is that when it comes to soldiers having to go through a medical commission before being sent, this does not always take place. How are the Russian authorities acting unlawfully, as you say, with regards to conscription? This is an age-old question when it comes to Russia. Firstly, a lot of people receive their conscription notice unlawfully. A person may have a family, and that is the reason why they can't be drafted. Or perhaps the type of work that they do prevents them from going to the front. Or in many cases, medically, people are unfit for service, yet they are still getting notice that they have been conscripted. And Valentina, what happens to people who refuse to go to fight when they are conscripted? I can't speak for how each and every person behaves. Uh, Some people try and appeal the decision, whereas others try and flee. Uh, There are also those that go but then try to escape. And then there are, of course, those that go into hiding. And how can you help? We get a lot of requests for help from people who are 40 and over. And what we can do is then direct them in how to appeal the decision within the right process. Since they're at home, they can always go on the website and speak to their local representative. And that is the first thing that they have to do before the situation escalates in any other way. Do you have any idea of how successful you are in supporting people who appeal against being conscripted? Thousands of people are trying to appeal. Uh, When it comes to counting in the thousands, I can't really tell you exactly the figures of people who then go and the ones that don't. But I strongly believe that if a person knows that they should not be conscripted, that they have rights and they should always fight for their rights. The Kremlin has admitted errors in the mobilization program. What does it mean by that? And how significant do you think that is? You say errors. They aren't errors at all. It is unlawful. The law has been broken. And I would refer to it as nihilism when it comes to justice. And has this in itself given a significance that they might change what they're doing? In some cases, it has been easier to return people that shouldn't have been mobilized in the first place. But at the end of the day, it falls down to each and every individual unit currently in Ukraine, because we know that there are many people, soldiers and officers alike, that should have never been mobilized, that are dealing with extreme 
difficulties because of medical conditions. And I'm getting thousands and hundreds of calls from both soldiers and officers alike who are currently in Ukraine, but they have to be returned immediately because now that they're there, they cannot get the medical attention that they need and they should never have been sent in the first place. You have outlined a situation where Russian people are being forcibly sent to Ukraine who may not be fit and may not want to go. Do you know much about what conditions they're having to fight in? It depends. Uh, When it comes to the day-to-day at the front, it is very dependent on where the person is. But of course, it's the trenches. So the situation is very difficult for many people. One of the main concerns is the lack of communication. It's almost impossible to get in touch with soldiers and officers. I know that they're not having a good time and they're not really able to tell anybody about it. Does your work and public opinion make a difference in the Kremlin's decisions, do you think? I myself was surprised that, yes, in fact, my work does have an effect and it has a very strong effect. We have received a lot of publicity from it. And one of the biggest things that we have been able to achieve is for the authorities to admit when they are wrong. Um, Valentina, you take personal risk by speaking out. Why do you do it? I can't say that uh, I personally am taking on any kind of unnecessary risks. I have been doing this for 33 years. But what I do have to say is that at the beginning, I had to be especially mindful of the type of language that I use, because of course there is censorship in that way. But for me personally, I wouldn't say that it's scary because what we deal with is issues that are presented to us from soldiers and their families. We deal with their concerns. That is our mission. And I believe in that we have strength. I would like to ask for support because for many Russians and for me personally, this, of course, has been a nightmare and I I am suffering. Many are suffering and especially who are in Ukraine. The situation is dire. When I speak about support, I'm talking about international organizations who can provide publicity to what is happening and can give a voice to those in Russia who currently cannot speak for themselves. We are silenced. What is happening right now in Ukraine is horrific and it is on the verge of total destruction. The fact that Russia has nuclear weapons and constantly threatens to use those nuclear weapons could result in complete annihilation, not just of Ukraine, but a large portion of the world. And I don't think that those threats should be taken lightly. 
My thanks to Valentina Melnikova talking to us from Moscow and to Ksenia Zubova for translating. Uh, Michael Clark, as well as some public anger over conscription, we hear more rumours of Vladimir Putin under pressure from some in his own inner circle. But is there any sign it's making any difference? Yeah, well, I don't know if the signs is making difference, but we're certainly hearing about it. And I think as Valentina's report there, or what she was saying, indicates that of all the things that are going wrong for the Russians in this war, the mobilisation process is probably the most dangerous to him because it is creating this sense of deep disquiet that the conflict is now beginning to affect all areas of Russian society and including areas in Moscow and Petersburg who had been really isolated from it or insulated from it until now. On the inner circle, it is the military and the security services who ultimately are keeping him in power, but he is blaming them constantly for what is going wrong. And the indications are that uh, Prigozhin, for instance, who's the leader of the Wagner Group, seems to be making a play for his own independent role in this war. He's certainly pushing his forces in Bakhmut. They're attacking like crazy in Bakhmut to no good purpose other than that he wants a symbolic victory. So he's got a, a problem. And then there's Kadyrov. Uh, who is the leader of the Chechens, and he seems to think that he's got more influence internally. And when Prigozhin and Kadyrov are trying to get inside the, the Kremlin circle, then the, um, the military and security services inside that circle are going to get very disillusioned and they're going to feel very edgy. So I think you can see the tensions building up. But when we ask ourselves, well, who might wield the knife against Putin? Who might actually be the first to break ranks and try to depose him? You, you, can't, you can't see a figure who would do that. But the, the forces that are creating that tension certainly seem to be building up. Now, we could probably spend hours discussing what the best war film is and still not decide, but All Quiet on the Western Front, made in 1930, would surely be a candidate because of the lasting impact it's made. The Oscar-winning epic depicting World War I from the point of view of a German soldier has also been described as an anti-war film. A new production of All Quiet on the Western Front is released this week on Netflix, this time in its original language, German. The book which inspired the films was hugely controversial when it was published in 1929. The author, Eric Raymark, drew on his own experiences to give a graphic account of the mental and physical impacts the war had on German soldiers. It sold well, but angered some who had served and was banned in several European countries as anti-war propaganda. But more than 90 years later, is a remake of All Quiet on the Western Front still relevant? The theme certainly runs through to today in uh, Ukraine. Rupert Wheelock is an army veteran and military historian. The story of war, unfortunately, is, is one of pretty difficult, miserable conditions for whoever is fighting. Although, of course, the geography is, is very different. As I understand it, uh, they are fighting from trenches uh, on the front line in Ukraine. And so that will come to people's minds. The book, which the latest film is based on, describes in graphic detail the confusion, the carnage and futility of the war. And its author, Eric Lamarck, had first-hand experience of all that. So it's an honest account. How important is it to have that kind of experience in writing a book about war? I think it was especially important for Remark, being a German, to be have the credibility of having served in the trenches for writing his book. 
because it was so controversial at the time in Germany, uh, with uh, so many people disliking the way that he explained things in how some people might feel it in a, in a way which demeaned Germany at the time. Interesting you say that because Remark is quoted saying this is neither an accusation nor a confession, which would seem to indicate a position of impartiality. Can you really be independent, though, when you clearly fought on one side? I think you can. Uh, I, I really do feel that there are people who can look at things, stand back and look at things. I completely understand those who are so emotionally involved in one side or the other that it comes out in an emotion which doesn't allow them to do that. But there are people who can see both sides of the story, even though they may have gone through some pretty grim times. And how important do you think it is, or how much does today's soldier really understand about what it was like to fight on the Western Front? And what do you think they should know about it? It's very hard to say, but I do feel that what we saw in Afghanistan was uh, pretty tough. And so I think the soldiers who served in Sangin and in Helmand from 2006 until uh, until we withdrew will have experienced something similar to the fear and the trepidation that the young soldiers uh, in the Western Front felt. But we must remember that World War One was not just about Europe and, and the war between on the Western Front. There were dreadful things that were going on in Gallipoli in the Arctic, all over the world. And this film focuses directly on the Western Front, though. Can you describe what it was like fighting there? Well, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not that old, so I, I <laughs> You know what I, I mean. <laughs> You're a historian. But, you have, will have researched it in great detail. Uh, but I have written about the First World War, and uh, it does seem to me to be something that is incomprehensible. In terms of the, the, the whole situation where we haven't as a country been at war where every single fibre of the nation is involved in something. And I think this is, uh, this is what makes it very special. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this film. I, th I think, I think it, from the teaser, it looks really outstandingly made. I mean, we've had a succession of really good World War I films since Steven Spielberg's War Horse, uh, and more recently, 1917, and the Sam Mendes film, which gives a new perspective, and Peter Jackson's They Shall Not Grow Old. So I, I think uh, this is now in a pattern of World War I films, and reading what people have to say about it is that, is that they, they feel that it's really important to keep the memory alive. Uh, there was a possibility in the last few years when the 100-year commemoration ended, people felt that it might diminish in some way the, the memory of the First World War. But a film like this will bring it back to the forefront of people's minds. There are familiar themes such as issues of mental health and life after service, both of which present real challenges today. Was it ahead of its time then? I think this is really good because the service charities in Britain at the moment are, are having a great difficulty fighting their cause for funding. Uh, and I think something like this film will will help them in jogging people's memory about, or their mind about, uh, how dreadful the psychological impact of uh, the First World War was, uh, and, and the soldiers who have come back from Afghanistan at the front line in the last 10 or 15 years. 
It's said very much to be an immersive watch. Do you think soldiers, for example, those who fought in Afghanistan, will appreciate or enjoy watching this kind of film? Or is it something they won't want to watch and it's more for the general public? I think it's for everyone. I think personally that there are two sorts of emotional war film. Uh, there's the ones that make you weep and they're the ones that hit you like a punch in the solar plexus. And I suspect this might be one of those films which does both. Rupert Wheelock on the Netflix remake of All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, Michael Clark, there's a real difference between the films of the World Wars, isn't there? The, the Second World War tends to be more about the big action. World War One, because of its different nature, the films tend to be more visceral and human. Yes, they. Uh, I think that's a fair point. They are, and you know, Eric uh, Maria Remark. He was writing in the Second World War as well. I mean, he was a refugee in a sense from the Nazis. He had to live abroad because all quiet on the Western Front was regarded as unpatriotic. And he continued writing, and he produced a book which I've been very fond of called "A Time to Live, A Time to Die," about the Second World War, which is about a Russian, a soldier, a German soldier coming back from the Russian front and meeting his childhood sweetheart in Berlin, just about as Berlin was being destroyed and was about to fall. And it became a film. The title was changed. It became A Time to Love, A Time to Die, and it's a real weepy. But he himself appears in the film. He takes a small role in it as an older man, so you can see him. And there he is. I mean, he was one of the authors who bore a sort of an everlasting witness to both the First World War, the Second World War, and the Cold War. You know, sometimes writers... <laughs> Writing fiction are able to give us a deeper truth about things that non-fiction writers cannot produce. They tell a truth that you can't get at in any other way. And I think he was one of the writers who did that for two world wars and a cold war. Professor Michael Clark, thank you very much. And my thanks to all of our guests. That's all for now. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. And if you want to listen online anytime, you can now find us at the Forces News YouTube channel, as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. 